Thanks, Carolyn. If you're in youth church, that's going to lean on me. If you're in youth church, it's time for you to go to your program. There we go. That's better. And for the rest of us, please keep your Bibles open there at uh, Isaiah chapter 2. And it's one of those, actually, this is one of those weeks it's worth, uh, it's worth saying if, uh, if you're someone who loves to read your Bible on your device, uh, far better to actually bring a Bible. And you'll see why as we get into stuff uh, in today, because it'll be easier to follow what we're doing. All right, let's get into it. Last week, I don't know if it's a bit echo up here, Josh, I'm not quite sure if it's me or if it's um, uh, the system. Uh, last week when we started the book of Isaiah, Tim, Tim linked uh, Isaiah to, or likened Isaiah to the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. And that starting in chapter 1, there we are at base camp. And uh, one of the things that Isaiah, the prophet, does for us as climbers at base camp is before we leave base camp, he gives us a plan. It's like Isaiah is the Sherpa, our climbing guide up the mountain. And here at base camp, before we begin the climb, he unfolds for us the plan of how to get to the summit. God's, God's plan. And if you are going to climb Mount Everest, you don't want a complicated plan. You want to keep it simple. And the plan is straightforward and clear. And what was the plan? Well, come, come back if you've got your Bibles there. Come back to Isaiah chapter 1. I think it very helpfully gets summarized for us in two very simple verses there in verse 27 and 28 of chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 27 and 28. Zion will be delivered with justice. Her penitent ones with righteousness but rebels and sinners will be broken and those who forsake the lord will will perish here is a god's simple plan what his plan is what he's going to do is he's going to purify the repentant and he's going to punish the sinner that's the plan purify the repentant punish the sinner and it's an important plan because in chapter 1, as you saw last week, God called all of, all of creation to pay attention to it because it's going to affect all of creation. It's a plan that, 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 is, uh, that it will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus' death and resurrection that, Je- that the, the world has really changed, that sins really have been turned as white as snow as the offer of Christ goes out to the nations. And boy, it was a plan that was needed because if you remember from last week in chapter 1, God was blunt with them about the rebellion that the people were in at the time. He, he made lines like, you know, even a donkey, even a donkey knows its master. Even a donkey knows to follow its master's instructions. A donkey can do that, yet my people, God says. They don't even acknowledge me as my God. And it's, it, and, it's, and it's not ignorance. The chapter was very blunt. It's negligence. The people are in willful, high-handed, ongoing rebellion. And God's just got to do something about it. So what's his plan? Purify the repentant. Punish the sinner. That's Isaiah in chapter 1 at base camp. Helping us to prepare to climb the summit of Everest. Now as we move into chapters 2 to 5, what Isaiah does next... Actually, even before we move out of base camp, what he does is he gets a telescope out. You know when you go to you know go to some bushworks walks and you go to a, you get to a, a lookout and they got a, they got they got that kind of telescope there, and you can put twenty cents in and you can look through the telescope. It's it's a bit like at base camp. There's a telescope, and in chapters two to five, what Isaiah does 
is he puts the 20 cents in the in the um in the telescope so that the nation of Jude, so that Judah can see in, in the distance and see close up what's ahead to spur them to action to motivate them to move towards the summit and, and what, he, what Isaiah does is as Judah looks into the telescope what they are going to see is the future where they're going what lies ahead what it's going to be like to see up close the plan of God and the outcomes it's going to produce. He needs to do that so Judah can see what's coming down the track. He's getting Judah to look into the future so as to help her make good life choices in the present. And so what we're going to do today before we leave base camp as well is we're going to look into the telescope and see what lies ahead and see the future because it's not just going to be helpful for them in their day to help them make their decisions in the present, I reckon you'll find that it's going to be helpful for us in our life choices in the present. So let's get into it. Now you can tell that today's passage is all about the future by the way it starts in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days... The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains and, and on it goes. But did you see those words that I, that I tried to emphasize there? In the last days. It's an important set of words that Isaiah is just up front with telling. Isaiah is telling us, you're looking into the telescope now and we're looking into the future, into the time called the last days. He, he's now talking into events that are yet to occur in the time of Isaiah. In the time of Judah. And Isaiah is saying to Judah, not in our day right now, but in the last days, this is what it'll be like. Okay, he takes them to a period in the future called the last days. And, uh, and this emphasis on the future just isn't just there in chapter 2. It, it stays there in chapter 3 and chapter 4 as well. Because as it, as it continues, interestingly, Isaiah moves from speaking about the last days and he will start talking about that day. And so if you've got your Bibles open there, have a look with me. We're going to do this quickly. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 11. You ready? I'm going to go through them quickly. The, arrogant, uh, the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Or chapter 2, verse 17. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humble. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Or again, chapter, uh, the, uh, chapter, uh, verse 20 of chapter 2. In that day... People will throw away uh, to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they made to worship. Or chapter 3 verse 7, but in that day he will cry out, I have no remedy, I have no food or clothing. Or chapter 3 verse 18, in that day the Lord will snatch away their finery, their bangles and headbands and on it goes. And I could go on into chapter 4. Right through this whole section there's this reoccurring use of the phrase, that day. Which is what holds this, this longer section that we're doing today together and so as we look into the telescope it's important to realize that that day is different to in the last days they sound familiar 
But Isaiah is being deliberately quite precise here, and so the distinction is important. The way it works is that in the last days, plural, they are the days that are going to lead up to and culminate in that day, singular. Because that day is the final day. That is the final, ultimate, climactic day when God will intervene and he'll wrap up this current world once and for all. It is the day that the New Testament tells us is the day when Jesus will return as the judge of the earth. And what Isaiah is doing is that as we look into the telescope, what he's doing for Judah is he's going to race forward in time, looking through the telescope, to show you the final outcomes of God's plan. Remember his plan? To purify the repentant and to punish the sinners. And we get to see what that plan produces both in the last days that will lead up to the final climactic day. And it's the last days that Isaiah wants us to look down the telescope and see first. So pick it up at chapter 2, verse 1 again. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is what the Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all, and all nations will stream to it. And now to get it, in the time of Isaiah, um, mountains were important. And the reason they were important is because many religions... Uh, they thought that the, you know, the higher the mountain, mountains are a closer point of contact between the heavens and the gods and the earth. And so all the other nations, they built their, they, they built their, their altars up high. They built their temples up high, closer to the contact of heaven. And Isaiah, however, what he sees in the last days is that there's going to be one mountain that stands supreme over all others. Because the worship of the God of Israel, the God of Judah, will stand supreme over all things. So supreme, it says there in verse 2, that all nations will stream to it. And again, look at verse 3. Verse 3, it says, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. It's this picture here that there'll be all nations, many peoples. I mean, can, can you see the image that he's trying to get these people to look through the telescope and see? It's not just going to be Jews anymore. Not just the nation of Israel. In these last days, men and women and boys and girls from all over the earth, they are going to stream and come and follow the God of Judah. And as they do, what, they, what they're going to be enjoying is a time of peace and tranquility with each other. Look at verse 4 and 5. It goes on to say things like that. They'll beat their swords in the plowshares. And their spears and the pruning hooks, nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I mean, it's, it's a delightful image there, isn't it? That, that all different kinds of people who were once divided, but are now united in their desire to follow the God of Judah. And so they enjoy peace and ease with each other. So much so that their swords and their spears or their bazookas and guns and bombs, whatever you call what the modern-day instruments of war, they are now just completely redundant. And I think that is a very delightful image 
for those people back then to look through the telescope and see. And friends, the delightful thing we need to notice is that that's already happening. Because the last days, they may well have been in the future for Isaiah. But the New Testament tells us that we are already living in the last days. And if you are unsure of that, go and read the uh, Apostle Peter in that, in that great speech he gives at the start of Acts, in, in Acts chapter 2, at what's called the day of Pentecost. It was that day where the, the, the apostles had been waiting for the Holy Spirit to come on them as Jesus had commanded. They're waiting there in Jerusalem. And when the Holy Spirit came, they began to speak in different languages. And so they were talking about the greatness of Jesus in all these languages they had never learned. But now that they could speak and people from all sorts of different countries could understand what was going on. And the people in Jerusalem who may not know all those languages heard these people speaking. And they're going, guys, you, these, you, are they drunk? What's going on here? And the Apostle Peter gets up and says, no, 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 we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. And he explains the situation to them. And as he does so, he quotes Joel chapter 2 and effectively says, you know, Joel spoke about the last days, about the Holy Spirit coming. And you know what? The last days has just begun. And in the last days, the word of the Lord, the gospel, streams out into the nations because God's plan is to purify the repentant. That's been made possible through the death of Jesus on our behalf. That offer to have your sins washed white as snow, that offer goes to the nations. And, as, and the image in the telescope, way back in Isaiah's day, at base camp, is as they look in, what they see is people streaming to the mountain of the Lord. And that's exactly what's happening at this very moment as the news of Jesus spreads across the world. I tried to get some estimations. Tried to get, it's hard to get accurate data on this stuff, and I don't know who's able to collect it, but how many people around the world on any given day are getting converted to Christianity and coming to Christ? I mean, I've heard all sorts of numbers as I've tried to do some research on that. The, the, the lowest number I've seen is around 10,000 people a day. I've seen higher numbers like 80,000 people a day looking into the telescope and seeing tens of thousands of people streaming up the mountain. It's already happening. And that peace that is poetically spoken about here with swords being beaten into plowshares, it's already happening in communities and villages and, and homes all around the world. I mean, only this week, I mean, I've been, I was reading a, a story about prison inmates. Uh, many of you will know I was involved in some prison ministry for quite some time, and uh, this story caught my eye. There was a, a, a prison inmate called Randy, uh, Randy Stingnett. He was a white guy, sent to prison. While he was in prison early on, he got a care package, and as he was opening the care package with some new T-shirts and things for him from his loved ones, there were a number of black men in prison who beat him up, and so he decided he'd join the white supremacist group in prison. Eventually, he became the head of the white supremacist group and one of the most feared men in prison. And there was another guy there called Dave Thomas. Dave was a black man at the same prison, trying to keep his head low, living in fear of the white supremacists. Over time, Randy, the white guy, 
Uh, he went to a Christian group's meeting in the prison. He, there was free food on offer. He thought, I'll just go for the free food. He went, he heard the gospel, he gets converted. He's streaming up the mountain. Okay? Changed his ways. Gets released. Goes to his local church. When he gets there, who does he meet at the local church? Who's sitting next to him in the pew? Dave Thomas. He's also released. He's also a believer. And these two men who were enemies in prison now sitting side by side each other in the same pew at church. And they were interviewed and talking about how reconciliation between the two men is even remotely possible. And they say, and I quote, the white guy says, Randy says, years ago, Dave would have been my worst enemy. Today he's my friend. Jesus is the key to racial harmony. Love your neighbour is the most powerful thing you can do. Only Christ's love will bring reconciliation. Unquote. Friends, we are in the last days. And the peace that is described here in chapter 2 is happening in pockets all over the world. As the news of Jesus goes out. And as people become Christians. And I find it fascinating that at the time of Isaiah, God actually wanted Judah to look down this telescope, down through time, into the future, to see this. Why would he want the people of Judah way back then to see this happening? So that he might say to them, verse 5. See verse 5? Isaiah says to them, come, descendants of Jacob. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. See, against this background of people from all nations flocking to God and enjoying that ever-growing peace in those last days, in verse 5, Isaiah calls on Judah and effectively says, hey guys, get your act together. Let's not get left behind here. Guys, a time is coming when all other people around the world are going to be coming to our God. A time is coming where they're going to be walking in the paths of the Lord. So let's make sure we are. Come on, house of Jacob. Get your act together and let us walk in the house, in the, in the paths of the Lord as well. Which I reckon, when you, when you understand that, really makes this part of Isaiah just a fascinating moment. Because think about it, God is allowing Isaiah and the people from all that time ago to look forward to the last days, to look forward to, well, to you and to me. So as to spur Judah on back then, some 2,700 years ago. I find that very humbling and exciting that God would allow those people back then to look at us. It's extraordinary that we are the example. How, how do we respond when we notice that? I reckon you ought to respond by, do you want to live up to that example? It makes me, in sometimes amongst Christian people, there can be petty jealousy and squabbling that is so easy to get involved in. 
But a passage like this makes me want to strive to display the peace and the ease that God is describing here so as to spur on those people back then. We ought to live back, live up to that example in the telescope. Now you're probably thinking, Pete, we need to pick up the pace. If we're going to get through these five chapters, well, we need to pick up the pace. Uh, back in Isaiah's time, if that, if that by itself, looking into the last days, was not reason enough for Judah to get, to get her act together, what Isaiah does next in the telescope, he kind of you know, put, puts up the vision a bit further, and he, he moves from talking about the last days, which we are in right now, and, he, and the telescope looks even further forward to the topic, to, to that day. That great and final day which the last days are leading up to. A day which is even still ahead for us. And God shows Isaiah that it is, it is a day that will either bring, what's his plan? Punishment or peace. I think in terms of punishment, because God's punishes sinners and purified the repentant. In terms of punishment, I reckon verse chapter 2, come with me to chapter 2 and verse 12. You get a great little summary of this section here, I think. Chapter 2 and verse 12, it says there, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all proud and, arrogant, uh, proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled, for all the cedars of Lebanon, Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, and every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols will totally disappear. It's a day, can you see being described here, a day of punishment for everyone who has been proud and lofty and they'll be brought low. Everyone who's arrogantly refused to walk in the light of the Lord. They'll be humbled. Anyone who's been too proud to admit their sinners, who need purification, who don't feel like they need to accept the offer to have their sins washed as wide as so, anyone like that, it's just like you'll be humiliated. It's a picture here that, that everything in which people have trusted instead of trusting God, every alternative that's out there is going to be brought low. It's so trees and mountains and fortified walls and tra trading ships. Or in modern terms, you know, shopping or economies or armies or false religion. All those things will just prove utterly useless on that day. And so it will be utterly terrifying for people who are not prepared for it. See what he says in verse 19. People will flee into caves and ro uh, uh, in, in rocks and holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and, and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They'll flee to caverns in the rocks and overarching crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. I'm hoping you're getting the sense, I don't know if I'm carrying it in the way I'm speaking, but can you sheer panic is the picture. They are grabbing things that were once so valuable to, to them that they trusted in. And it says on the last day, but I don't want to be seen holding an idol. 
And so they toss it as they run to the hills and to the rodents, to the cockroaches and the rats and the moles and the... Because they're so worthless. Can you see the fierce anger of our God causes sheer panic for those who are not ready for that day? In fact, the whole fabric of the creation trembles. These verses are actually meant to make you begin to think like, what is my worst nightmare? And then to realize it's going to be way worse than that. And it's not just here in chapter 2 that I'm summarizing here for you. Go and read into chapter 3. The imagery will go on and on and on as God speaks about the sheer terror of that day if you are not ready for it to arrive. And what's his point? Why would, why would Isaiah at base camp get them to look into the telescope and see this, this, that day? The point that he's making is you don't want to go through what's going to come on that day. You need to see how terrible it is. And Isaiah shows Judah how terrible it is because he goes, I want you to avoid it. It doesn't have to be like this. Because for those who are humble, for those who want to live in the light of the Lord, for those who are penitent or repentant, who recognize their sin and, offer, and accept the offer of forgiveness, that won't be a day of punishment for them at all. You can be prepared by being forgiven. And that's what he goes on in chapter 4 to focus on. Because remember, God's plan is not just to punish sinners, but to purify the repentant. And for those who are purified, will come with me. Chapter 4, verse 2, we'll pick it up there. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. It's trying to get you to, to see that the, see the, the, there's a... There is going to be a moment of glorious fulfillment when all of God's purposes for, for the repentant have blossomed. And it says, Then those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, that is, there are people who will survive that day. They'll be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. The Lord will create over Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be shelter and shade from the heat of the day, a place of refuge and hiding from the storm and the rain. And it's trying to picture, I don't know if you're capturing it all as I read it, but it's trying to picture life like in the Garden of Eden. Israel kind of always struggled in the land. There'd always been famines and droughts and they had invading armies to deal with. But in that day, in that final day when the survivors had been purified, they'll enjoy an abundant provision in the land. But not just beyond that, he, he gets you the picture really, the exodus where God travelled with them in a, at night with the cloud and, the, and it was a canopy over the tabernacle. And he says it won't just be a tabernacle over the temple, it'll be a tabernacle or a canopy over everything. That no matter what, Whatever strife or difficulty there is in the future, this will be a place because of God's canopy of unending peace and security, and that all lies ahead. 
for those who are humbled, who walk in the light of the Lord. Now, why would Isaiah want to get them to look through the telescope to this part of that day? Not just the punishment of the, of the sinners, but the, the purification and the safety of the, of, the, of the repentant. He's trying to get the people back then to ask the question, well, which one are you going to be? What's your experience on that day going to be like? I reckon we are confronted with the same thing, aren't we? What's your experience going to be like on that day as you see the telescope as well? Don't be too proud to accept God's offer for help and have your sins washed clean. Join the ranks of those ever-growing people who are streaming up the mountain to walk in the light of the Lord, to accept the offer to have your sins washed as white as snow. Take advantage of that offer while you can because that offer won't be there forever. And of course, the other application is, for goodness sake, help others to stream up the mountain too. And as they get to pondering that detail there at base camp for the people of Judah in Isaiah's day, what happens is that the telescope 20 cents runs out and they can no longer now look into the future, to the last days and to, the, to that day. And Isaiah, before they leave base camp, wants them to, well, just open their eyes and have a look at today to their day because of having shown them the future and having shown them the summit and having shown them the last days and the days that lead up to and and the least that and that and that day what Isaiah does next is show them today and chapter five is all about today and having allowed Judah to look into the future so that she can make good life choices in the present he shows them the present so that they can see the urgency of making good life choices. But to do that, interestingly, he sings a song. It's kind of like you've got the campfire at base camp. He sings a song before they leave. And I quite literally mean he sings a song. Now, why would he do that? I think he sings because there is something about, there's something about a song, a good song, that taps you into the emotion of the moment. That will bring with it the passion and the, 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 the urgency and the, the feelings that they ought to have going through them in the present day. Look at how the song starts in chapter 5 verse 1. He says, I will, sing for, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it with stones and planted it with its choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. I, I love this song because it's actually quite an easy song to follow. You can see it focuses on a vineyard, uh, a vineyard of the one that Isaiah loves, a vineyard that has been spared no expense. Right from the start, this vineyard has been lavished with care. Its position, it's not just anywhere, it's on a fertile hillside. The soil is diligently worked over. Protective walls are placed around it. The best vines are sourced and planted. 
And you'd think that given all the care that has gone into this vineyard, you'd think that it's going to produce a terrific crop. And yet verse 2, when Isaiah's loved one looked for a crop of good grapes, it yielded only bad fruit. And here is the main point of the song. A vine that has been spared nothing has given back nothing. In fact, worse than nothing, it's only given back bad fruit. And so in disgust and in frustration and in grief, the vineyard owner abandons the vineyard to the elements and moves on. And the song even invites the people of Judah who have been listening to the song. They are invited to see the reasonableness of that decision. I mean, who could blame the guy for doing that? Look, look at verse 3. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than what I've done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland. And Okay, this, the song's pretty straightforward, isn't it? A vineyard that has been spared nothing produces only bad fruit and so the owner of the vineyard abandons it. That's easy. And of course, it's not just a straight song with a little it's a agricultural song about a vineyard. The people listening ought to have been thinking, now what's the lesson here? And of course, there is a lesson. In a case they couldn't work it out straight away, Isaiah spells it out for the dummies. And, uh, and uh, after a six-verse song, in chapter 5, what we get is another 24 verses of explanation of the song. <laughs> and right up front, he wants to tell them who the vineyard owner is and who they are. Look at verse, look at, look at verse 7. He says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard only cries of distress. See, this is a song about Judah and Israel in the present day, in their day. They are the vineyard. And the song is spot on because they should know that they are the ones who from scratch, God has lavished with care and protection. Ever since Genesis, under the start of a nation under Abraham, God has been bending over backwards for them, saving them out of Egypt, nursing them lovingly through the wilderness, bringing them into a promised land which he gave them on a silver plate. They really have been the vineyard that God has spared no expense on. And yet all the way through the Old Testament, they've just been pushing God away. All God wants to do is bless them. All they want to do is rebel against him. All they want to do is sin. So much so that now in the present day of Isaiah, God says, I look for justice. I see only bloodshed. And I look for righteousness and I hear only cries of distress. In the present day, they are truly a vineyard that has produced nothing but bad fruit. And if verse 7 isn't clear enough about the bad fruit that they produced, from verse 8 into the rest of the chapter, Isaiah goes on to list off very specifically what some of their bad fruit is and just how disgusted God is by it. You see it in the woes. 
six times from verse 8 onwards, Isaiah will say, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And each time he says, woe to you, he's actually numbering off another piece of bad fruit. Bad fruit like greed. Look at verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and joining field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Greedy people, land grabbing with big houses, people just driven by real estate and wanting more and more real estate. God is disgusted by them. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Now, people who run from party to party, who are just so fixated in the pleasures of the moment, given over to drunken debauchery, so much so that they will not give God a second thought. bad fruit that God is disgusted by or verse 18 woe to those who draw sin along the line along with cords of deceit and wickedness with as with carts those who say let's let God hurry let him hasten his work so we may see it the plan of the holy one of Israel let it approach let it come into view so we may know it now this one's a little harder to, to to get on first reading but Isaiah is is getting at kind of cynics who are so full of themselves that they mock God. Oh, let God hurry and let his plan actually come if he's got one, right? If he's real, let it come about because God is disgusted by them. Or verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Fools who justify their own evil behavior by sophisticated arguments which only redefine what's right and wrong God is disgusted by them. Or verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, who are clever in their own sight. Smug people who say, Oh, we're so enlightened that we moved on from all that believing in God and all that baby kind of stuff. God is disgusted by them. Or Isaiah, look at verse 22, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Self-absorbed people who are more interested in the vintage of Chardonnay that they are drinking rather than whether justice is actually being done. People who pay for boozy lunches with the profits from bribery and corruption, God is disgusted by them. Here is the bad fruit of Israel in the present day. I tell you what, doesn't it sound a lot like Australia in our current day? In Australia, we love real estate. We love parties. We love drinking binges. We have virtually no time to reflect on, on the world. We are simply chasing after one pleasure after another. It is all sin and God is disgusted by it. Isaiah is saying to them, drawing their attention after the telescope's turned off to the present day to tell them, you're just not at all ready for that day, are you? And Isaiah tells them, what God is going to do is give you a foretaste of that last day to bring you to your senses. 
And so in the midst of the woes, God keeps on saying, therefore this will happen, therefore that will happen, therefore this will happen. We'll just look at one here, verse 13. Therefore my people will go into exile because of lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore death expands its jaws and open wides its mouth. It will, into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. And it's, it's a graphic image, a graphic foretaste of that day, just a foretaste. But the image here of Israel being invaded and dragged into exile with a destruction so fierce that it kind of pitches death like a monster that has its jaws open wide just stuffing more and more people into the grave. And if that's not enough, in verse 25 he says, Therefore in, in their day, in that present day, therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. They are terrifying words. His hand is still upraised, ready to strike again. That is the foretaste of that day. And of course, what are we to do with all this then? Now you've, now you've seen the sweep of these four or five chapters. Friends, learn from the foretaste. You ought to read chapter 5 in particular and go, gee, I am glad I'm not alive in Isaiah's day, in that present day. Where the words were, yet for all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is still upraised. You ought to be glad that you leave this side of the cross where God's plans has moved forward significantly from that present day, from that foretaste. So you know that that word about his anger is not turned away and his hand is still upraised, that is not God's final word. It was his word in that day for them, but we live in a new day where there's a, the final word God has. Within God's grand plan of grace and mercy, forgiveness is his final words. Mercy is his final words. Grace is his final words. For in the cross, we see the punishment that we deserve for all our greed and self-indulgence and pride and arrogance, the, the punishment we deserve has been unloaded on Jesus instead of on us. And so a chapter like this, or chapters like this, as dark as they are, they ought to lift your spirit to rejoice again in Jesus, to be thankful for him. We ought to feel the relief that Jesus can bring us. And yet as wonderful as as true as that is, you still ought to read these chapters, noticing how disgusted God is at the bad fruit. And you ought to ponder that question going, gee, he looked for fruit in their life. I wonder what fruit he sees in my life. Passages like this one ought to challenge you to consider whether you might be falling into the trap of treating sin too lightly maybe there is something in your life that you need to change maybe there is a sin that's ongoing in your life that you are just denying how serious it is and how disgusted God is by it 
You ought to leave today going, I've got to deal with that. If in your heart of hearts you know it's wrong, you ought to deal with it. We live in a society really that discuss God and it's so easy to just get caught up in those same things. It may mean you need to go away home today and start giving away more money, being deliberately more generous to safeguard yourself against that kind of greed that disgusts God. It may mean that you need to walk away from a friendship or a relationship that might mean quite a lot to you, but you know it's just causing you to justify sin in your life. Friends, this morning this passage reminds us just of just how disgusted God is by sin. And surely we are being reminded as his people. It ought to disgust us as well.